you join me together in prayer? Let's pray. Father, we've just been singing of our resolve to stand upon every promise of your word. This requires we know the promises of your word. It requires that we trust them. It requires your grace and your Spirit's illumination. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to plumb God's Word and to discover every promise and give us grace to indeed take our stand on your Word rightly understood. Your Word, O oh Lord, is a rock. Help us to build our houses on it. So that when the winds come and the rains fall and we are battered, O oh Lord, we will stand because we built on the rock, especially the rock that is Christ, in whom all of your promises are yes and amen. So help us stand on Christ, the Christ of the Word, and help us to stand. We commit ourselves to you now. Speak to us, O oh Lord, we pray. Help the preacher, help the hearer. Help us see Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, beloved, if you're here this morning and you're new to our services, you know this is the portion where we give attention to God's Word, and uh, we commit ourselves to preaching the Word expositionally. That is, the main point of our sermons are meant to be the main point of the passage, and so to help follow the sermon, it's helpful to follow the passage. So if you need a Bible this morning, we got some folks in the back that will gladly supply one to you. So are there any visitors here who need a Bible? Any members here who need a Bible? There we go. All right. Got a few hands up. Uh, hold your hand up. One of the brothers or sisters will bring you a Bible. And this morning, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we continue our series called We Believe. And this is, as you know, is a series through our statement of faith, the, the London Baptist Confession written in 1689. And we've come to the next to the last chapter of that statement of faith, which is on the life to come and the state of people in the life to come. But now I want to begin with a question. In fact, I want to begin with five questions. And this will be our outline for our time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you're taking notes, this is our outline. Five questions that we didn't want to answer from the text. Number one, what if the resurrection never happened? What if the resurrection never happened? We're going to consider that in verses 12 to 19. Number two, where does the resurrection fit? Where does the resurrection fit in the end of the world? And the events that lead to the end of the world. We want to consider that in verses 20 to 28. Number three, does it practically matter whether we believe in the resurrection or not? Does it matter? to our everyday lives. We want to consider that in verses 29 to 34. And in number four, what will we be like in the resurrection? What will we be like in the resurrection? Verses 35 to 49. Fifth and finally, will everyone be resurrected? Will everyone be resurrected. Verses 50 to 58. And I pray that as we consider 1 Corinthians 15 verses 12 to 58, I pray that the Lord, as we contemplate the resurrection, would, would root us in unshakable hope and great confidence as we live in light of this great truth. First question, what if the resurrection never happened? Look with me in verses 12 to 19. Bible reads there, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, 
how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I love the way Paul just jumps right into this. Verse 12, apparently in Corinth there were some teachers there who who taught that there was no resurrection, that God does not, in fact, raise the dead. Now, we don't know if these are folks who have come to be professing believers who were like the Sadducees, their early Jewish sect in Jesus' day, that denied the resurrection. We, we see them mentioned in Matthew 22, around verse 23. We see them mentioned in Acts chapter 17. They were different from the Pharisees on precisely this point. They denied the resurrection. They denied angels. They denied miracles. These were the anti-supernatural religious folks. Or we don't know if they're like those pagan philosophers in Acts chapter 17 when Paul is there in Mars Hill and he speaks to them about the unknown God and they're listening to him until he gets to the resurrection and then they start to mock him. What foolishness is this? That someone got up from the dead. So, so we don't know their spiritual lineage, but, but whatever is the case, they're inside the church in Corinth, and they don't believe in the resurrection. And Paul takes that on directly in verse 12 by saying, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? And in verses 13 and 19, he says, let's, let's spin that out. Let's, let's play that out. Let's, let's follow that to its conclusions. And in those six verses or so, he gives us seven implications. Seven results if there is no resurrection. Number one, verse 13, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. So he says, listen, if you don't have a category for God raising men from the dead, you do realize that Jesus, whom we proclaim as resurrected, he didn't get up. He's still dead. He's still in the grave. Then he says, number two, verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. See, the dominoes are falling. If God doesn't raise the dead, then Christ didn't get up. Then this preaching of Christ is vain. It's empty. It's futile. It has no power. Then he goes on, number three, also in verse 14, (laughs) and your faith is in vain. And Paul is saying, listen, we preach Christ crucified to you, and that's how you came to believe. But if God didn't raise Christ, then our preaching was futile. And not only that, but your belief is a false belief. It's a vain hope. You believe for nothing, and your belief is powerless if Christ wasn't raised. Number four, verse 15. He then turns to himself. We, the apostles, the preachers of the gospel, are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. In other words, every Christian preacher is sinning against God by bearing false witness, by giving false testimony, by saying God did something that God did not do if, in fact, God does not raise the dead. Five, verse 17. Verse 16, the first part of verse 17, he repeats, if Christ is not risen, our preaching is in vain. And he says this, and you are still in your sins. In other words, if God doesn't raise the dead and Christ wasn't raised and our preaching is futile and your belief is vain, There has been no sacrifice for your sins. 
There has been no atonement made for your sins. You have still sinned against God, and God is still angry with you, only there is now no one between you and God. You face God's holy wrath without a Savior, without a mediator. God doesn't raise the dead. We, beloved, are still soaking in our sin and facing his judgment. But number six, verse 18, not only that, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Fallen asleep in Christ is just a, a euphemism for those Christians who have died. Now, the apostle's been preaching there's a resurrection and there's a hope and there's a life after this life. But if God doesn't raise the dead and Christ hasn't been raised and preaching is vain and belief is vain and we're still in our sins, then those who died in Christ, believing in him, have died in their sins and they are right now suffering God's judgment. Number seven, verse 19. If in this life only... We have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If a Christian believes in the resurrection but God does not raise the dead, then the Christian is the most pitiful creature on earth. He's a fool. She's a fool. We've believed a lie. And in fact, we've based our whole lives on a lie. There's no consolation prize for that. There's no runner-up prize for that. See, the Bible right here in verses 12 and 19 says, let's look this squarely in the face. Let's, let's consider this point blank. Let's think through the implications of denying the resurrection. And it comes up with this. There's no way to be a Christian if Jesus is not raised from the dead. And there's no way to be saved if Christ is not raised from the dead. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. And maybe you come this morning with questions about the resurrection, even doubt of the resurrection, and maybe you feel a little affirmed in your thinking that's thus far in the sermon. Hang on. But notice something right now. Simply notice that this argument against the resurrection is in the Bible. It's our own holy book that has taken up this question in an honest, direct way. You can come to the Bible with your questions, and sometimes you'll find that the Bible's already anticipated your questions. 2,000 years before you were born, God wrote down these thoughts. And maybe these were your thoughts this morning, and you thought going to the Bible would be pie in the sky, by and by, a bit of fantasy and a little fairy dust and, and no reality to it. <laughs> no, our own book begs us to come consider the realities of the resurrection and what it would mean if it were false. This means, beloved, you can interrogate the Bible. You can ask it honest questions. You can come to it with your toughest questions. And, and we don't mind doing that as Christians. In fact, if we're good Christians, we're thinking Christians. And if we're good Christians, we're not afraid to think about the things that go right to the heart of our faith. And we beg you to come to the Bible with us, to think about these things from the Bible with us. And why? Because we think the Bible actually cures unbelief by providing reasonable engagement with serious questions. So, come to the Bible. If you're here this morning, you're skeptical, you've got questions, you'll find that the very first Christians often ask the same questions that you have, engage the same issues that you are perhaps engaging, and you'll find that they stared those questions down, and they emerged with an even stronger faith, because the Bible is true. Now, I don't know about you, but I think you can trust a book and a faith that openly considers your toughest questions. You can at least listen to it knowing that there's honesty and integrity in it. How maybe you came with questions and skepticism, but, but did you give the Bible credit for being honest and having integrity? If you haven't, you might want to reread the Bible and reconsider what it says. Notice a, a second thing. 
I wonder if you are as sober, if you're skeptical this morning, I wonder if you are as sober in your conclusions about your own belief as the Bible is in its conclusions about Christianity. You see what the Bible does here? It says, listen, if you deny the resurrection, this is what you must conclude. Christ is not risen, preaching is foolishness, you are still in your sins, and your loved ones that you like to think went to heaven, they perished. Are you that direct in following your thinking to its conclusion? I've spoken with a lot of skeptics about Christianity and the resurrection. And it seems to me that a lot of them want all the blessings of Christianity without the beliefs of Christianity. So when we have that painful experience of a loved one dying, even the skeptic often likes to hope that they went to heaven. Even while they want to deny the resurrection or life to come. At that point, the skeptic has less integrity than the Bible. So I wonder if you followed your thinking to its logical ends. Let me tell you what you'll find there if you take that journey. Despair. Because if you don't have hope beyond this life, you're actually in the same boat as the Christian in this text who believes the resurrection and the resurrection to be false. You get down to verse 19, you are pitiful. You, you have no hope. You, you, you really don't have a, a, a life and worldview that gives you any confidence of anything beyond this life. And that's a pitiful way to live. It's a miserable way to live. And honestly, it's why many people don't go to the end of their thinking. They stop short. They back up. It's dark over there. And we're afraid of that darkness. I want to offer you an alternative this morning. I want to offer you a truth that's perhaps better than the belief that you have made up. And a truth that's rooted in history and real events that give hope beyond this life. If there is no resurrection, all of us are pitiful. All of us are doomed. All of us will face God as judge. But now let's consider this second question. Where does the resurrection fit in the scheme of things? In world history and even the, the end of the world. So in verse 12, Paul takes on those Christians who say that there is no resurrection, but, but now they're not the majority in the church, and they're certainly not the right party in the church. And so in verse 20, he comes to point out the fact that there, no, there are some who do rightly believe the resurrection, who do say, yes, Christ is risen from the grave. Hallelujah. Now look with me in verses 20 to 28. The Bible says there, but in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he's accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, when the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. That last three verses are like, whoo. We'll explain that in a moment. Where does the resurrection fit in the world? Well, first of all, the resurrection is a matter of ancient history. It's a matter of ancient history. The Bible says that the resurrection, verse 20, is a fact. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. See, everything in verses 12 and 19 was speculation. Some of you say there is no resurrection. That's, your, that's their philosophy. That's your belief. That's what you have concocted. 
But now we come to verse 20. He is now juxtaposing. He's now comparing. He's now setting next to that kind of imagination the truths of history and fact. So he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And really, he's been talking about this since verses 1 to 11, right? So if you look back at verses 3 and 4, we see the biblical facts about this. Paul writes, therefore, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. He wasn't just dead, but notice verse 4, that he was buried. And he wasn't just buried, but notice that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. These are the biblical facts that were prophesied hundreds of years before they actually happened. This is a matter of ancient history. And these are not only biblical facts, but eyewitness facts. Now look at verses 5 to 7. And that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. These are things that were witnessed personally. Sometimes to individuals and sometimes to people, as many as, as 500 at one time. God not only raised Christ from the dead, but he did it in the open. He didn't do this in secret. He didn't do this in darkness. He did this before the sight of men and women, indeed before the sight of all of creation. The resurrection is not a fantasy. It is a historical truth. The risen Christ was not a phantom or a ghost, but the Son of God raised from the grave in glory. That fact, that historical incident, happened 2,000 years ago, and there are witnesses to it. So the resurrection is a matter of ancient history, but the resurrection is also a matter of personal history. We gather that, we glean that from verses 21 to 22, but there's something you need to understand to understand those verses. Paul there has a view of what we call federal headship. Federal headship. That all of us have representative leaders. And so there are people in here who are citizens of the United States. There are people who are citizens of Zimbabwe, citizens of Guyana. And each of those countries have a representative head. So President Barack Obama, like it or not, is the president of the United States. Next up we pray is not Donald Trump. No, I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. Next up we pray is not Donald Trump. But somebody's next, right? (laughs) They become the the federal head, the representative of the whole body of people who are U.S. citizens. Robert Mugabe is the president of Zimbabwe, has been for a long time. And so Zimbabwe and all of its people are represented by that one man, Robert Mugabe. The president of Guyana, hey, I forget his name too. I looked it up this morning, but I forgot already. The president of Guyana is the federal head of that country, David Granger. And all of of the Guyanese people are represented by their head. Whatever he does as a leader of the country, it reflects on and it represents and it impacts all those who are citizens of the country. And that's what Paul has in view here in verses 21 and 22 when he begins to talk about Adam and Jesus. Either we all have Adam as our head, our president, or we have Jesus Christ as our federal head and representative ruler. Those who are not yet Christians are in Adam. That's their, that's their head. And in fact, we were all born in Adam. We were all born in Adam's likeness and sin. It was through Adam that death entered the world, and it's because of Adam's sin that all people die. But a new president came. Jesus Christ. He didn't bring death, but notice what the text says. He brought the resurrection. Verse 21, for as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all who believe be made alive. So the resurrection and our response to it 
becomes a matter not just of ancient history, but of personal history, of who we vote for, of who we live for, of who we follow, whether Adam into death or Christ into the resurrection. And not only that, the resurrection is a matter of, to coin a term, future history. It's a matter of future history. We see that in verses 23 to 28. All of history is headed toward the crowning of Jesus Christ as Lord and God of all things. And it's headed toward Christ taking all things and presenting it to God the Father as God's own. And it's the resurrection that begins history's movement toward that coronation, toward that crowning of Jesus Christ. We sang it a moment ago. Crown him with many crowns. What? The lamb upon the throne. That's, that's what's being ushered in in the resurrection. We call this future history because it's already known and written down, and yet it's not yet been fulfilled in time. Here's how it happens, looking at the text there. Christ is resurrected, but you see there it says he's only the first fruits of the resurrection. That's, a, that's an agricultural metaphor. He's the first part of the harvest. There's a fuller harvest to come, but he's the, the first part of it. And then it tells us after his resurrection, Christ ascends to heaven where he rules at the right hand of God. Verse 25 tells us that Christ is ruling now until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. That's where Jesus is now at the right hand of the majesty, ruling. And it says he's coming again. Verse 23b, those who belong to Christ, that's the full harvest, they will be resurrected when he comes. And then verse 24, once the second coming and the resurrection happen, verse 24, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. A reference to rule and authority and power refers to the to spiritual forces of wickedness, to Satan and his demons, to those who oppose him in the spiritual realm. Christ will destroy them all. And notice he'll destroy the last enemy, which is death itself. John Owen put it well in the title of his famous book, that when we talk about the resurrection, we are really witnessing the death of death in the death of Christ. He is conquering the grave, and he's conquering the curse of death itself. And the resurrection is the beginning of Christ putting back into order all things. With God on top, so that God the Father is all in all, and Christ his Son ruling with him. Not as verses 26, 27, 28, not sort of, not under subjection or apart from him or ruling separately from him, but all things under subjection to God. Equal with God and ruling with God will be Christ. And everything under the very feet of God. All of creation is but the footstool of Christ. All of creation is but the cushion that he rests his feet on as he rules his universe. And creation has rebelled and turned against God and his rule. But Christ in his sacrifice and resurrection is restoring all things to their proper balance. That's where the resurrection fits in time and the scope of all things. That's where we're headed. The life to come is a life lived under Christ as head and under God as all in all. It's a glorious future that should not be missed. To deny the resurrection is to deny the very purpose for which history was made. To deny the resurrection is to deny our place in that story. It is to deny Christ himself. And those who deny Christ die in Adam and suffer sin's judgment. It's really a simple choice whether we would be with God when he comes to rule and establish his kingdom or whether we would be with the sinner in hell, suffering God's judgment. There are only two outcomes to life. 
And we've been sent here to preach this this morning so that we might exhort everyone, choose well. Choose Christ. Choose life. Choose the resurrection. And live as you were meant to. Which brings us to our third question. Does this matter practically? Does it have any bearing on life if we believe the resurrection or if we reject it? Some people think of the resurrection as a teaching that should be left in the closet with all those embarrassing clothes that are going out of style, right? You, you got it. It's yours. You believe it, but you tuck it way back in the corner because you don't want to wear them polka dots and stripes you used to wear in the 70s, you know? But the resurrection is essential, beloved. And it's timeless. And as Christians, we need this for our everyday lives in order to live as God would have us live. The resurrection matters a great deal for how we serve God now. So look with me in verses 29 and 34. Paul has an otherwise there. What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. There are three ways in which the resurrection is very practical. The resurrection practically matters in how we approach God. I think that's how we can generalize verse 29. You see that reference there to those who are being baptized on behalf of the dead? Raise your hands if you know what that means. Okay, Langston knows what that means, so you can see Langston with your questions after the sermon. Uh, <laughs> it's, a cryptic, it's a cryptic sort of comment there. This was never a widespread practice in the early church. I don't know if Paul is referring to some Christians who are doing this or if this is a pagan practice being baptized on behalf of those who are already dead. But what is clear is that whoever's doing this doesn't understand Hebrews 9.27. What a writer in Hebrews says it's appointed for man to die once and after that the judgment. The Bible doesn't really sort of entertain a, a state between this life and the life to come wherein people sort of still have another chance to get it right. There's no purgatory. No, there's no in-between state. We live this life once, and after that is the judgment, right? So whatever this is that Paul is referring to, he's not recommending to us as a Christian practice. But I do think he means for us to understand that the resurrection impacts how we approach God. These people are doing that because they believe that there is a life after death, right? They believe there's a life to come. And they are taking religious action in pursuit of that life. But if there is no resurrection, then they're being baptized for the dead. It makes no sense whatsoever. And we can say that of many Christian practices. Paul has already mentioned preaching. If there's no resurrection, then preaching is in vain. And what about baptism? We celebrated that so beautifully on Thursday night. These wonderful testimonies of God's grace saving our brothers and sisters. It's lovely. And, and if there is no resurrection, baptism makes no sense. Because in baptism, we are pictured as being buried with Christ and raised again from the grave. Last Sunday, we observed the Lord's Supper. If there's no resurrection, the supper has no meaning whatsoever. Because in the supper, we are proclaiming the Lord's death, what? Until he comes. But, but if he's dead and he hasn't risen, he's not coming. If Christ did not rise, then all of Christianity has fallen. And it impacts how we approach God. Notice, secondly, the resurrection matters practically for how we sacrifice for God. You see that in verses 30 to 32? Paul goes through those rhetorical sort of questions and comments. Basically what he means there is if there's no resurrection, it makes no sense to risk our lives for the gospel. 
If Christ is not raised, then we may as well live our lives to satisfy every desire. You see how he puts it there? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And many people live that way, don't they? And many people live that way because they have no view to life beyond this one. You ever notice that if you try to root your meaning in life, in this life only, sooner or later, this life begins to feel meaningless? That's the entire point of the book of Ecclesiastes. He goes through everything under the sun, trying to find meaning and purpose in life. And at the end of it all, enduring all, he keeps saying, vanity of vanities, all is meaningless, all is meaningless. It isn't until he considers God at the very end of the book, and he says, this is the whole duty of man, to fear God and keep his commandments, that he finds meaning. See, this life's purpose is actually to, we to use this life in order to anchor our purpose and meaning in the life to come. And if you cut off the life to come, this life actually is a wandering, isn't it? It's an ultimately unsatisfying wandering in the wilderness of our own desires. And Paul says here, without the resurrection, it makes no sense to take radical sacrifice for the gospel. But if Christ is raised from the dead, then we will face wild beasts in Ephesus. We will die daily. We will risk all knowing that we risk nothing because even when we lose our lives, we gain it. And we pass from death to life already through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We go on from life to life if, in fact, Christ is raised and our lives are hidden with Christ who is seated with God in heaven. This is why we commit ourselves to missions as a church, as one of our aims. We want very much to, to take what God has given us in, in money and talent and time, indeed our bodies and our very own lives, and to risk it, to stake it, to invest it in the spreading of the gospel to men and women who do not know Christ. To tell them of a resurrection and an eternal life that makes meaning of this life and this satisfies them forevermore in the life to come. And we can face that risk like the Apostle Paul. You remember Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1? He's thinking about his life as an apostle. And he's, 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 sort of in, he's looking at his life and he's going, man, I've suffered all of these things. And he says, I've suffered so much that at one point it felt like we had the sentence of death written in our hearts. And do you know what brought him out of that funk? He says, then, basically, I remember that God raises the dead. And the apostle was propelled on in gospel ministry and in the work of missions. So it is with us. We, if we lay hold to the resurrection that this life is not last and this life isn't even most important and this life isn't even to be jealously grasped, if we lay hold to the resurrection, it frees us from the clutches of this life so that we have the life to come and we have this life more fully. So we're meant to die daily that we might live fully. And that's helped by remembering the resurrection. We sacrifice, and the resurrection becomes fuel for our sacrifice daily. One last thing in terms of how the resurrection matters practically. It matters not only for sacrifice to God. It matters not only for how we approach God. It matters for our morality and holiness before God. You see that there in verses 32 to 34. Those who deny the resurrection deceive themselves, according to verse 33. They perhaps hang out with people who ruin their faith and ruin their living. See, who you befriend often influences who you become. And so Paul says there, bad company ruins good morals. That's true for all of our teenagers here and all of our middle school students. And that's true for all of us old rusty adults. All right? Bad company ruins good morals. If, if, if your friendship network is stronger in the world than you are in Christ, it will sooner or later bring you into the world. All right? We may be so influenced by bad teaching and bad living of others that it becomes to us, verse 33, like a drunken stupor. Do you realize you can be drunk with sin and bad theology? You can be staggering through life in unstable belief. 
So the Bible says in verse 34, notice, do not go on sinning. In other words, repent. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Now, when we begin to think there's no life to come, there's no resurrection, we begin to live immoral and unholy lives. If we think there's no judgment to come, then we tend to live as if there's no right or no wrong. We give ourselves to all kinds of immorality, all kinds of sin. And ultimately, our sin, sin stems from an inaccurate knowledge of God. We think he's not looking. We, we think if he is looking, he won't judge us. We, we think he understands us, by which we mean he's okay with whatever I want to do. We, we think that his judgment won't be that bad. The Bible says you must be drunk and you need to wake up. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. His wrath is unending. His displeasure is hot. His knowledge of our sins is perfect. If he counts our sins against us, not one of us can stand before him. Before the face of a holy God will be no hiding place for sinful men. And his judgment, his punishment will be without end. And that suffering having God withdraw all of his grace, all of his mercy, all of his goodness, all of his love, all of his kind presence from us, and instead pour out all of his indignation, all of his fury, all of his justice, all of his judgment. It will be the worst misery ever imagine. It will be unimaginable torment. We don't play about hell. We don't mission it casually. We want to be sober about hell, about how wide the mouth of hell is and how strong the clenching of its jaws so that those who go there never escape. And we want to see the resurrection for the escape that it is. The only escape. The only rescue. The only way to be snatched from the jaws of a, of a yawning abyss and to be rescued and brought to the loving arms of God is to believe in Christ the Savior who was crucified for our sins and three days later raised from the grave for our justification. Oh sinner, believe on Christ and you will escape hell. Believe on Christ and you will be raised together with him to enjoy life with him and the Father forever. Believe and be saved. Christ is risen indeed. Cling to him. Come to him, not by some superstition like baptism for the dead. Come to him in repentance and faith turning from sin and believing upon him and sacrifice for him, not in order to earn your salvation, but having had your life purchased already by the blood of Christ, yield it up to him as something that he owns. Give it up gladly for him. And not only that, live then a life worthy of your calling in Christ. Live a life in pursuit of holiness, not happiness. And if you pursue holiness, really loving Christ, that will be your happiness. That will be your joy. Come to Christ and live. Two more questions quickly. Number four, what are we like in the resurrection? What will that be like? Look at me in verses 35 and 49. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. 
and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have, been, have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Paul is still dealing with the Corinthian objections. And apparently one of the objections was, well, what will our bodies be like? You know, if we've been dead for some time and our bodies have decayed, what, you know, resurrection doesn't make any sense, man. Some folks have long since become sort of food for worms. You know, how is that going, how's it going to be a, re- a resurrection? We might even sort of throw in the question that sometimes asks, you know, will a person be resur- resurrected if they're cremated? All right? Well, Paul's answer to that is, is really threefold. One is he rebukes them. He just calls them foolish. <laughs> you, you foolish Corinthians. Right? And he calls them foolish because, as he said in the previous verse, they have no knowledge of God. And once you put God into the equation, then all things are possible. You know, God is not facing a design problem when he's thinking about the resurrection. Right? He's got this, right? And Paul says there are going to be two things that are true of us. Number one, we're going to be like seeds. You see that there in verses 36 and 37? We're going to be like seeds kind of planted. Now, the thing about a seed is when you plant the seed, you're not planting the thing that you're planting. Does that make y'all follow me? Good, because I don't know how to say it better. Right? You put a seed in the ground, and a little bit later, up comes a tulip. You put a seed in the ground, and a little bit later, up comes an ear of corn. One of my favorite projects as a kid in elementary school was when they would send us home with seeds in the little clear plastic cups, and you had to plant the seed and watch it grow and kind of document how it grows. You know, you come home every day from school, you look at that thing, and nothing yet, and come back, nothing yet, and you begin to think your teacher done lied to you because ain't nothing happened right then. And pretty soon, you start to see these little, these little roots and little things that come up, and oh man, then life is starting to happen, right? You see a stem that grows up, and pretty soon it breaks through the soil, and the bulb starts to rise and open, right? Paul says that's what the resurrection is like. You sow your body as a seed, but that's not the flower. That's not the flower. Something else is coming, something, something glorious that, that God will, will bring to pass. You, you put a seed, a, a kernel of wheat in the ground, and later you get this full stalk of wheat. So it will be with us. But he says it's like something else, too. It's like transformers. <laughs> it's the best I could do, y'all. The Lord, the, the Lord gives this seed a new body as a plant, and this transformation is all the work of God, according to verse 38. And God gives each seed its own kind of body. So he uses an analogy there, right? So, so human bodies are of one type of flesh. Animals and the birds and the fish have different kinds of flesh. So they're different kinds of bodies, so that not everyone is alike in some sense, but they all share in the glory of the resurrection. Verses 42 to 49 give us the, the transformations. Did you see it there, verse 42? Sown, perishable, raised what? Imperishable. 
Or you may have a translation that says, sown in decay. And the word there kind of brings to mind the, the process of decay. From the moment that we're born, we begin dying. And we reach a certain age and we become walking medicine cabinets, don't we? We just decay, just kind of creeps into the bones and it's hard to get out of bed and you know, your eyesight starts to fail and, and, and your body is quitting on you. Now this says we're going to be raised in the reversal of decay. The idea here is not just that, that we are raised in some state of no longer perishing, but we're raised in this state of the reversal of perishing. So there is a continuing increasing, not of death, but of life. We're raised imperishable. We're sown in dishonor. And maybe that's a reference to our sin or the corruptions of the body but we're raised in glory or in splendor. Now, that's not to say we're raised as shining beams of light, these sort of light beings, as you see pictured in the movie sometimes. No, we're, we're transformed into glory, into splendor. We're transformed into the reflection of God's own glory and God's own splendor. Whatever's been dishonorable about our bodies and our existence in this life will be planted like a seed. And it will die. And what will rise from that seed is all that is honorable and glorious and splendorous about humanity in Christ. There are not going to be any more body image problems in heaven. There's, there's not going to be the, the regret, the fallen regret we have about being short or tall or, or having blemishes in our skin or, or whatever that is, whatever is dishonorable, not only will we not feel that about ourselves because it's not true, no one will think that of us. Whatever is our shape, whatever is our height, whatever is our complexion, whatever is our disability, if we're raised with disabilities, it will not be a disability in glory. In, in glory, it will be glorious. It will be, it will be splendid. It will be splendorous. It will be brilliant. Everything that is about us that will have been dishonorable in this life will be planted and dies and we will be raised in fullness of honor in Christ. And there's another transformation. We are sown in weakness. How many feel their weakness? But we are raised in power. Every weakness that we suffer in this corrupted world will be replaced with power. Every once in a while, my daughters bring me a jar out of the kitchen to open, and they come with such confidence and hope. Dad, will you open this? Never second guessing. And there's always that slight moment of, oh my goodness. Sometimes it's like, <laughs> I stick my chest out like, there you go. Sometimes like, <clears throat> And then you know what you ask. What you do to this thing? You know, <laughs> bring me a cloth. You know, <laughs> you know, weakness. Silly little forms of weakness. Serious forms of weakness. The temptation that keeps coming, and you're fighting it back and running from it, and doing what you can to guard your life and your heart from it. And it keeps coming, and you keep feeling the infirmity. You keep feeling the weakness. It won't be true in heaven. No more weakness, only power, power to live this glorified life because we've been, number four, verse 44, sown in a natural body but raised in a spiritual body. Again, this doesn't mean that we're disembodied and, and, and that we're just sort of floating spirits and phantasms. No, it means that we have a body fit for life in the spirit. We have a body fit for spiritual things. We have been so transformed that we can now be in the presence of God without dying. And we can look upon him and see him and soak in that beauty which is God and fasten our eyes on that splendor and delight in it for eternity. If we are Christ, then we are sown in the image of dust. We're sown in Adam. But we're raised 
in the image of the man of heaven. I love that phrase. Raised in the image of the man of heaven, in the likeness of Jesus Christ. The work that God began when we first believed, which he promised to carry on to completion in Philippians 1, at the resurrection, when we see Christ, will be completed. And we will be dressed fully in Christ. We will be dressed in his likeness. We will bear his image. We will bear his glory. We will live in his power. We will live in his honor and splendor without ever worrying again about falling from it. We will be clothed in the image of the man of heaven. Christian, that's what's in you. And it's what's being worked out of you until Christ comes and it's all of you. This is why the resurrection matters. We are transformed in the resurrection. We have this hope of transformation in the resurrection. The the resurrection is when all that's most broken in this life gets transformed into all that's most perfect in Christ. And so the church says, come, Lord Jesus, come. One final question. Will everyone die? Will everyone die? Look at me in verses 50 to 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Will we all die? Well, verse 50 tells us of one death. Those who are in the flesh. Those who are perishable. They cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I wonder if you heard it as Miss Carol read Revelation 21 for us. Revelation 21, verse 8. Outside the kingdom, outside of the heavenly city, are people who are described as liars, idolaters, sexually immoral, sinners. They will die, not only a natural death, but what the Bible calls in Revelation 21 and Revelation 22, 15, the second death, the real death, where we are cut off not just physically, but we are cut off spiritually forever from God. All who die in their sins die indeed. Don't die that way. Because verse 51 and following tells us, not of those who are in Adam, not of those who are flesh and blood, of those who are perishable, but it tells us something that those of us who are in Christ, notice the word must, the perishable must put on imperishability. The mortal must put on immortality. Write it down, make it plain, your resurrection into imperishable, immortal, spiritual life with Christ is guaranteed. It must happen. Having been born again in Christ and his seed now remaining in us and his life hid in us and working out through us, it must come to pass that you not die, and even if you do die, that you live again. The nature of eternal life is that it is an ending, unconquerable life. It cannot be extinguished. It cannot be snuffed out. It cannot be ended. It is eternal. And it must work itself out to its fullness in imperishability and incorruptibility and glory so that the Christian never dies. He never dies.
Oh, in time, before Christ comes, some of us will fall asleep. That's how the Bible refers to the death of the Christian. Some of us may fall asleep in Christ. But it's not a permanent sleep. It's like the sleep of sleeping beauty. It's broken with true love's kiss. And Christ comes again and gathers his bride and consummates his wedding. All the curse of death and the sleep of death is broken. And we are made alive again in Christ, more alive than ever we were. And some of us will be alive when he comes. We'll be waiting for him when he comes. The sky will be open. The trumpet will sound. The archangel will shout. And the text says here, the dead in Christ will be raised, and those of us who are alive will be caught up together with them to meet him in the air. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, and so forever be with him. And what a victory. That's the word Paul uses there in verse 57. This is a, a victory. It gives us the victory God does through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we see here the defeat of what's called earlier our last enemy, death. The writer of Hebrews says Christ has come to free those who all their lives have been made subject or slaves to their fear of death. And here we see it pictured right here. How many of us fear death? If we fear death, then one of two things are true of us. We're either not thinking deeply enough on Christ's victory as Christians, or we've not yet come to know Christ. For to come to know the resurrected, risen Christ is to come to, to know the one who has already defeated death. And he's defeated it for us. And so there's no sting of death. There's no threat of death. And this is why the best saints die well. They die with their eyes fixed on that glory to come. They die with their eyes on the resurrected Christ. And they die either whispering on life support or proclaiming in a hail of bullets death swallowed up in victory. Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? You've got nothing on me. For I am Christ, and he is mine. Verse 58 is our application. If you remember nothing else from this sermon, remember two things. Christ is raised from the dead. And number two, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Live verse 58 this week. Let nothing move you. Let nothing tempt you to, to fold. Be steadfast. Do the work of the Lord this week. Whatever he has given you to do in your home, in your workplace, in the church, do that work, whether it's confession or forgiveness or, or witnessing or serving a brother or sister in need. Do that work knowing this. It's not in vain. It's not in vain. It will be rewarded in the resurrection of Christ, which is your resurrection and its glories. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Oh, Lord, how wonderful are all of your works in the world of men. How great you are, oh, Lord, for sustaining the universe with the word of your power. How kind you are for making the sun to travel its circuit, to rise and set and rise and set again bringing light to the righteous and unrighteous alike. 
How gracious of you, O Lord, to make your reign to, to fall upon us all, whether we are yours in Christ or whether we are in Adam. You have shown your kindness to us all. But the greatest of your works, Father, is the giving of your Son, the only Savior, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, who lived perfectly in our place and was crucified for our sins, who, who suffered your judgment, which we deserve, and whom you raised on the third day, proving that his sacrifice was accepted, proving that he defeated death and the grave, proving that there is a life beyond this one, and we may have it by faith in him. Thank you for your work of redemption through Christ your Son. Do that work even now in someone's life this morning. Even now there's someone who is thinking, Lord, I, I'm in my sins and I don't know if I know you or I'm pretty sure I don't know you and, and this resurrection life I've heard about, I don't have. I maybe even doubted it coming in here. Lord, by your Spirit, would you, would you renew their hearts? Would you give them the gift of repentance and faith? Would you cause them to look away from themselves and to look to Jesus and to cast all their hopes upon him? to believe in him, to trust him for who he is, the Son of God, crucified, buried, and resurrected, and coming again to get his people, and to believe that through faith in him, all that you have promised in the resurrection would be theirs. Give them that gift of faith, we pray. And we pray for ourselves who have believed. Make us steadfast. Make us immovable. Help us to avoid the, the bad company that corrupts good manners. Help us, O oh Lord, to awaken from any stupor that we might have been in and to end our love affair with sin so that we might be faithful with our bridegroom, Christ. And help us to stand in the truth and the power of the resurrection. For you rose, Christ Jesus. You rose for us and you are coming for us and our lives are hid together with you. Oh God, give us a, a greater foretaste of your coming glory. Oh, Lord, lay our eyes upon that splendor. Fill our hearts with the hope of incorruptibility and imperishability. Fill our hearts, oh, Lord, with the hope and the power of your resurrection. We want to know you, oh, Lord, in the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your suffering so that we may attain to that life that you have promised. Work in us, oh, Lord, those who believe. Steadfastness. Immovability. Help us to do your work until you come, knowing that we will receive a reward greater than we can imagine. We tire of this broken life. Even when we enjoy it, we tire of it. So come. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly and gather your bride. Come. In your name we pray. Amen.